What's up, advocates? Welcome to today's episode of Make Them Hear You. Today, we're talking about the two Olmsteads, which means a conversation about community. What is it? Some communities are easy to pinpoint, like a business community defined by trade. Others, a little less so, like church community defined by denomination. Even less so than that, online communities defined by activity or something less tangible. Communities like Black Twitter or SMI Twitter. Then there are communities that have a multi-layered understanding. A specific identity that intersects with home and politics. Like urban, rural, and suburban communities. For example, I grew up in suburban Georgia. I didn't know urban meant Black people in the realm of politics until I became politically involved. Before that, I thought urban meant New Yorkers. For a better example of what I mean, politically, Georgia was able to move mental illness legislation in 2022 by focusing on the disconnection of rural communities from services. That focus was not on suburban or urban disconnection, and that carries quite a political weight, much like the word community in the world of mental illness. For most Americans, community means home, a place where your needs are met, where your family goes to school and work, engages with friends and neighbors, a place to thrive. For people diagnosed with a mental illness, the word community carries that political duality. Community means Olmstead. Community means access to resources. Today, we will take a look at the legacy of Olmstead, the woman, the law, and the community. What kind of community are we talking about when you want to heal in your community? Yeah, for me, uh, I define my community as the peer support community. So people who have lived experience with mental health challenges, who understand what it's like to hear voices or to be chronically suicidal or to be extremely depressed. That's why I kind of, I have warm, fuzzy feelings, I guess, about community because the online community has kept me alive. There's been many times when I've tweeted about how I wanted to end my life and the community swooped in and helped me. But yeah, it's how do we get those that support that so many of us get online? How do we get that in our everyday lives? For Black Americans, community is something a little different. Historically, community is a literal safe place. For many of us, the place on the map where we still call home was the only place our families were legally allowed to thrive. The Black church was a safe place for news, politics, and faith. Black schools were not just for learning, but the focus of federal law and national segregation. In our current communities, those standards still remain in practice as a default. Let me back up to give a little bit of background on what I'm talking about when I say Olmstead. The short answer is that it's a court case that, like many of the court cases with a huge impact on the lives of people with a diagnosis of severe mental illness, comes from a place of good intentions, but whose execution has left a lot to be desired and does not affect all people equally. In prior episodes, we talked about the who, how, and why of treatment for people with a diagnosis of severe mental illness. Today, we're going to be focused on the where of it. The process of closing down hospitals and setting the bar for inpatient treatment ever higher didn't happen all at once. And one of the major milestones in that process was the decision of the case of Olmstead v. L.C., 
by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1999. The case was an interpretation of the Americans with Disabilities Act passed by Congress in 1990. The LC of Olmsted was a person, a black woman, with an intellectual disability and schizophrenia. And the case was a challenge to her continued institutionalization in a psychiatric hospital, despite treatment providers agreeing that it would be possible for LC to receive appropriate care in an outpatient community setting. The Supreme Court agreed with LC that she was entitled to receive care in the least restrictive setting appropriate for her needs, and that a state's failure to do so was discrimination per se. It also explicitly stated that a state's lack of funds is not an acceptable reason to keep someone in an institutional setting when community placement with support is enough. Sounds pretty good, right? The decision, written by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was supposed to create a powerful tool to ensure that states don't keep people with disabilities in institutions just because it's cheaper than if they were instead placed in their communities with adequate supports. To be clear, I agree with the principle behind Olmstead, but in practice, the requirement that states empower people to live in their communities by providing appropriate support has tended to focus on the in-community part while wholly ignoring the appropriate support part. States now obsessively focus on their state hospital census and push for rapid discharge so they won't be accused of warehousing people. But for the severe mental illness community, at least, Olmstead didn't lead to the kind of massive community investment that would have been needed for community-based care to be adequate to meet the needs of those being discharged. As usual, we focused on the part of the new rule that saved money closing hospitals or discharging people quickly, and ignored the part that cost money, beefing up community support so after discharge, people would actually be safe and cared for. And as I'm sure you can deduce from prior episodes of this podcast, the community care a black or brown person received is most often deficient or non-existent because all care for our communities lags behind the mainstream population. What this is supposed to mean under Olmstead is that a person isn't discharged without these needed supports in place and that the state will therefore be required to spend what it has to spend to make those supports adequate to place those who can be safe in the community in that setting. This has been somewhat successful for populations under the ADA like those with developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities. But for those with a diagnosis of severe mental illness, we've mostly seen a willingness to discharge people into nothing. We can return you to the community, and now it's the community's problem. I spoke with Victor Armstrong about what the Black and Brown community is able to provide as a stand-in for adequate government investment. Victor worked for many years in the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services and has since focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's an inspirational figure in combating Black suicide and promoting acceptance of open discussion about mental health within the Black community. I think my career has been a bit of an evolution. In fact, I share this with young people all the time who are really trying to find their place and find their niche. I kind of evolved into finding where I think I was meant to be. 
I started out in business because I believed in my head that was where I was supposed to be. I grew up in rural North Carolina, so I grew up working in tobacco fields and doing farm labor. And the one thing I knew was that I did not want to do that the rest of my life. I started my career in banking. I did it for a couple of years, realized it was just not for me. And I took a job working at a, at a Department of Social Services while I was trying to figure out really where I wanted to be after I walked away from, from banking and quickly realized that human services was my place. That was my niche. I worked in child protective services for a while, saw a lot of heartbreaking things, but also saw just a really huge need for work in the human services area. So I went back to get my MSW. And while I was in the process of getting my MSW, I really fell in love with the clinical side. So coming out of graduate school, I had, by that time, had started to abandon my wish to be in social services and really migrate to mental health. So I came out of graduate school, worked for a while as a clinician. I worked for a rural mental health area program that served five very rural counties, which meant out of those five counties in eastern North Carolina, for three of those counties, there was a period of time when I was the only clinician, period. So I saw the, the kids, I saw the adults, I did the DWI groups, I saw men who were court ordered for domestic violence, I saw their their spouses who were the victims of domestic violence. So it, it was an opportunity for me to see a lot of different things and experience a lot of different things, but it really just kind of, I think, cemented for me that this was a profession I wanted to be in, in mental health, but I think it was also that experience of really kind of seeing the, the different needs from so many different angles that I really fell in love with community mental health and how do we create access for people, particularly historically marginalized communities, for whatever reason those communities are historically marginalized, and how do we create access for people to get the care that they need and really try to do that in a way that allows people to access those services where they live, work, and play, which I didn't realize at that time, but it was really, you know, focusing on the social determinants of health and how to address those things. So that's a long answer to how I got here, but it has been an evolution. Victor's personal evolution is inspiring and powerful. It's how many of us get involved with advocacy. Once you experience a community void of basic resources, you can't unsee it. Our other guest is Amade, the founder of Depressed While Black. Amade knows from lived experiences what it's like to be marginalized in your own community, disconnected from basic needs and resources. After trying twice to take her own life, she looked around her community, found that it was lacking, and decided to fill those gaps with belonging. I'm Imade. I'm the founder and executive director of Depressed While Black. It's a 501c3 nonprofit that provides Black-affirming personal care items to psychiatric patients and helps folks connect to therapists. I created the Help Me Find a Therapist program because of the pain that I was living in, because I couldn't find anyone that could treat me. It looked throughout my whole state, and there's basically what I found, two Black therapists that take my insurance who utilize dialectical behavioral therapy that can treat me. And so I just wanted to figure out how can I create a service where anybody can use it. Because to be honest, for some Black therapist directories, 
my mental health issues are too severe for them to treat me, <laughs> you know, and we could talk about the hierarchy in the mental health movement where it seems like folks with the least severe symptoms are the most centered and the most supported. That is absolutely accurate. I have the least need. I probably have more access to insurance than you'll ever have. And it's, it's gross. I mean, I get why we got here, but I don't get how we got here. It makes no sense. Yeah, we definitely need to center the most marginalized, the folks who are experiencing the greatest degree of emotional distress from mental health challenges. That's why I created the Help Me Find a Therapist program, because a lot of the the directories that are amazing, I can't use them. (laughs) I'm too sick to use them. I wanted to create a place where people with severe conditions could find therapists. So we did it. We started manually. Victor and Imade are both passionate suicide prevention advocates, passionate mental illness advocates. And together, we, family caregiver, provider advocate, and individual with a diagnosis of serious mental illness, we epitomize the unity of the Black community and the dissent. Although our needs are the same, Imade's experience and family, when compared to my experience and family, we experience community in very different ways. This is where the break in community begins. This is the beginning of the two Olmsteads. Imade represents the Olmstead Advocates Celebrate, someone who can and should thrive at home with the resources they choose in the least restrictive community environment. My family is the Olmstead doctors have abandoned and many advocates shun. My loved one is not safe in the community, not always. My loved one does not always have the ability to follow the spoken and unspoken behavioral rules that govern community. And during a mental illness crisis, psychosis keeps my loved one from expressing their basic needs. Because of this, my loved one's experience with the mental health community has not involved much community or mental health. Our experience is being left out in the cold. Families like mine find themselves locked in the criminal system which is not a community at all, something that Victor Armstrong speaks about often. When I was a public defender in Henry County, Georgia, that always touched me, that I was meeting these people on their worst day. And I thought if I worked at that part of the system, I could help them. But I tell up-and-coming lawyers all the time, you're going to have to meet them before they get in there. That's where we need the community uh, resources the most. Can you tell me just your experience with some of those racial barriers to early intervention and getting our people before they're in the system. I quickly learned that many of the treatment models that we have were not designed to account for the nuances of race and culture. I was involved several years ago with helping to start a a mental health court in a community that I was was working in. And it was something, to this day, is something I'm very pleased about for many reasons. One being because it was something that was a result of community stakeholders coming together. We, we learned that the administrative office, of course, was not funding any mental health course, but we felt that it was something our community needed. And so we got together and pulled in a couple of judges and public defender and our local managed care organization and pulled this together. But the thing that was still disheartening to me was even with well-intentioned programs like mental health courts, they can still be very selective in who gets into the program and who is deemed to be worthy and redeemable in those in those programs. And I think that's part of the challenge that I've seen over the years with mental health and historically marginalized populations. 
I've often said that in the world of mental illness, severe mental illness represents the marginalized within the marginalized. When you add racism or poverty, that marginalization becomes compounded. One of the things that we learned in North Carolina was, and I say we learned, but you know, I think we always knew, but we didn't have enough minority providers. And when we started trying to go into those communities and try to mitigate the behavioral health challenges that people were experiencing as a result of the pandemic, but also trying to build out a template for how we address those needs in the future, we realized that we were trying to respond to a need with our customary historical resources that we've always approached issues with. But this was a different kind of issue. This was an issue where we deal with the pandemic, where there's a lot of distrust, where there's a lot of political divide, where there's a lot of anger. People were experiencing socioeconomic challenges. And so all of these things were going on. And there was also this historical distrust of a system that says, trust us, we're going to come in and and mitigate your, your health needs and we're going to fast track this vaccine. But we want you to trust us that we have your best interest at heart. And there were communities that did not believe that. And so when we're going in and trying to both address behavioral health needs and the physical needs of these historically marginalized communities, utilizing people and resources that these communities don't necessarily trust, we ran up against some barriers. And what we learned early on was that we were going to have to approach this differently. We're going to have to partner differently. What does it mean to partner differently? It is a great lesson to learn from the Olmstead case, a landmark civil rights case that gave disabled and elderly people a right to seek long-term care services in their own home instead of an institution. And that kind of partnership is vital when creating community. But when your loved one isn't capable of speaking those words and accessing their community, what then does Olmstead look like? What then is the legacy of community? For example, in families like mine, it's common for our loved ones to enter an emergency room while in psychosis. Our loved ones can be trapped in a confusing or terrifying hallucination, but without medical scars, they could be turned away without treatment. Medical professionals in many states have separated the mind from the body, and as a result, removed families like mine from our communities. And when police can't say no, they become our unwilling, undertrained, and historically biased community. Something Imade takes seriously. So seriously, she has reservations about legislation that was created with her community in mind. A lot of changes are, are starting to happen because as 988 is rolling out, I know we're going to see the difference in emergency and crisis sort of highlighted, and we are going to still be in the hands of the police when we have an emergency versus a crisis versus someone who is at that moment too sick to volunteer. How has your experience with 988 been so far? I haven't used it yet. I typically try to avoid suicide prevention hotlines. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but I actually feel safer talking to my peers and disclosing with them. But I've used the crisis text line a lot. I'm definitely a frequent flyer when it came to the the text line because it provided privacy. I can disclose and not have anyone overhear my conversation. So I've used these hotlines, but 
I'm not getting a lot of excitement from my community about 988. I'm seeing a lot of fear about potential mandated reporting to the police. And, you know, the trans lifeline, they are explicit. They say they're they're not going to do non-consensual active rescue. And so I'm sensing from my community that they're really leery of 988. But for me personally, I won't discourage anybody from using a hotline. I think that folks just need to have a backup plan. If this hotline is not helpful, sometimes you're placed on hold. Sometimes the, the counselor is providing awful advice. <laughs> I've been told just go for a walk or get mental health services. I'm like, I can't afford them. Yeah. If you're in a situation that the first hotline doesn't help, I would definitely encourage folks call a second one, call a third one, have multiple numbers in your phone. So I don't discourage using the hotline. I just know for some folks, it can be a little bit scary because they don't know what's going to happen after that. So legislators across the country are going to be patting themselves on the back for doing this wonderful thing for for mental health. What is it that they need to know that has to keep being done to make 988 something that is actually useful for the people who are calling and not just like a service that you put out there that no one can use? Yeah, I think it'll be really important about to be very explicit about their relationship with the police and mm. when they would bring police into the equation. I think I read articles that said basically if you're not actively suicidal, there really isn't a threat of police being involved. But the thing is that I'm black and like people see me as a threat if I just breathe. I find Imade's point of view haunting. I have a close friend with a diagnosis of serious depression and suicidal ideation with multiple attempts. Before the suicide hotline, I did everything wrong when trying to help them. So wrong, I can't believe my friend still loves me. But it was those phone calls to the suicide prevention hotline that gave me all of my foundational skills. For that reason, my advice is if you know nothing at all about suicide, the suicide hotline can be an invaluable starting point. In the beginning, the suicide hotline was my community, a resource that allowed me to help my friend when I knew nothing. But to be honest, we eventually graduated. My friend learned all of my prevention tricks and I had to find new skills. So I did have to piece together a new community. Through self-help books, questioning my own therapist, and brave first-person accounts of suicide that I found online, I've been able to be someone my friend can call on. But I was never calling for myself. And in advocacy, that matters immensely. And as an advocate, I must advocate Imade's fears into my aspirations for policy. When it comes to the rollout of 988 as a community resource, Victor Armstrong feels it can be a helpful tool. But racism and cultural biases must be taken into account. I want to go back to your quote. African-Americans are more likely to report psychological symptoms, but less likely to pursue treatment. We don't have access to treatment in neighborhoods where people of color live. Their introduction to the mental health care system is in the back of a police car. When I read that, that was when I knew I had to meet you. And I find that phenomenal because it was the first time I saw someone, well, I read someone describe my family's exact experience. So I have a loved one diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. That journey from, wow, our loved one is bizarre, to this is serious mental illness was just lined with 
ignorance of what mental health was, of the language. We could have seen it earlier, but we had no idea what we were dealing with. And to have it be actualized through the criminal justice system has been painfully difficult. My loved one's diagnosis was received while awaiting competency restoration. To this day, my loved one has not met with doctors outside of the criminal justice system. How do we get the police car out of that equation? Yeah. Well, we have an opportunity to do that in part with the 988 mental health response number. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that 988, just like 911, is is really a dispatch. And so we have to create the resources to do that differently. So part of the way that we get the police car out of our response is, and it won't be easy, but but we have to create the, the resources, the avenues to have a mental health response, to respond to people having a mental health emergency with mental health resources. That means that we've got to rethink mobile crisis resources. That means that we've got to have places in the community for people to go to. Because the other, the other part of that is not only do they start out in a police car, but they also end up in an acute care emergency department, which is also not good. So, so we've got to address those kinds of things. Ending up in an acute care emergency department is unfortunate and symbolic of our refusal to extend compassion to people who have been marginalized. It happens because medical professionals have abandoned those too sick to volunteer for treatment and help only comes during a crisis. There are no upstream resources for us. It happens because there are insurance gaps that won't cover unemployment or underemployed people. It happens because hospitals put profits over people and are reluctant to place resources in poor and rural areas. It happens because we have a federally mandated bed shortage. We also have to realize that there is a bias toward interacting with black and brown men who are in any type of crisis with a law enforcement response. And that also has to change. People who die at the hands of law enforcement, 23% of those people have a diagnosable mental illness. And then the overwhelming majority of those are black men. There's obviously a problem with us not having a more suitable response than we have a mental health challenge. And then we put that on top of the challenges we already have with the inherent fear of black and brown men as somehow being more more dangerous. So we got to rethink all of that. I, I, you know, I would say that it starts with recognizing that our response to mental health, people with mental health emergencies is fundamentally flawed to start with. Because part of our challenge is for someone having a medical emergency, we call it an emergency. For someone having a mental health emergency, we call it a crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason we do that is because we don't have the resources to respond to their need at the time that they need it. So we call it a crisis. But that really means it's the system that's in crisis more so than the individual. But when we respond, we respond with law enforcement, which is designed to respond to 911 in general, is designed to respond to either a medical emergency or a, or a crime. And when you tell them, okay, you're not responding to an emergency or a crime, you're responding to a crisis, that's a whole different mindset. So when you show up for an emergency, you do come to protect and serve. Someone is having an emergency because their house is on fire, you want to get them out, rescue them, keep them safe. You respond to a crisis, you want to keep everybody else safe. So we have a system now that's not designed to protect and nurture the person experiencing a mental health emergency. It's designed to protect the rest of us from that person experiencing a mental health emergency. 
And so that that is a fundamental flaw. And so we got to change our thinking to one that really comes at it from the mindset of my role here is to protect and nurture the person who's having the emergency. I can't do that with guns drawn. When I respond with law enforcement to someone who's acting erratically, whose behavior may seem chaotic, as a law enforcement officer, I'm going to go into a fight, flight, freeze, or annihilate response, which means it's not going to end well for the person having that emergency challenge. So I think that part of it is creating more mobile resources. Part of it is also looking at how do we put resources closer to pe- where people live, work, and play so they can access those resources so that we do have less incidences where we end up having to call law enforcement to respond to someone having a crisis because they're getting the treatment that they need. Even when we have a central dispatch where you call into a number, which I know some states are looking at this model, a decision is made whereby if it's a mental health emergency, we'll dispatch a mental health response. If it's a criminal offense or something that puts the public at risk, we'll send a, a law enforcement response. The way that our system is built now, black and brown people are still going to get the law enforcement response because there is this sense that, particularly for black men, that we are somehow inherently more dangerous. And so I still think that even if we create a separate avenue whereby we can dispatch a mobile crisis response for a mental health emergency. We still have a lot of work to do in getting the police response out of the picture for black and brown people, because there are going to be situations where a law enforcement response is warranted. There are going to be situations where, because it's a dangerous situation, you may want a law enforcement presence. The challenge is that the bar is set differently for whether you need a law enforcement presence to respond to a black or brown person versus a white person. And I think those are some things that we still have to address. Essentially, Imade, Victor, and I all want the same community experience, one where mental illness is addressed daily, naturally, and with compassion. A community where our first responders are free from racism, bias, and tools that criminalize. Is that not the ideal community response for everyone, regardless of race, regardless of culture? Yet, because of many factors, racism and implicit bias at the forefront, we often get pushback from our own community about police involvement and upstream treatment. I'm a member of National Association of Social Workers. And whether we're talking about social work, whether we're talking about psychiatry, whether we're talking about advocacy, I serve on the board of American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. American Association of Suicidology. I have a member of, of National Alliance of Mental Illness. We all have to acknowledge that we have not done enough to address the needs of historically marginalized populations. If suicide prevention, suicide awareness is about saving all lives, then we have to focus on how do we need to be approaching those interventions in Black and Brown communities in ways that we haven't in the past. In this research, I've come to realize, well, I've come to sort of desire a shift in language. You use Mm. mistrust and I agree, but it it became, we're not mistrustful, we're well-informed. And Mm -hmm. that burden shift, you're absolutely right, needs to be on the institutions who cause that mistrust. What kind of truth and reconciliation do you see as being what's missing that will help bridge that trust? 
Yeah, some of it, I think, is just, as you just framed it, when we talk about even the language that we use to describe why there are some of the gaps, so much of it has historically been, it's been designed to shift the focus to the marginalized and put the put the burden on the marginalized. You know, even when we talked about people not wanting to take vaccine, we called it vaccine hesitancy. And it wasn't so much vaccine hesitancy as much as, because that makes it sound like, well, we can just get you not to be hesitant, you'll take the vaccine. But it's not about the marginalized being hesitant. It's about what the majority has done to cause that distrust and and focusing on that. I think part of our challenge in the behavioral health space is that we have the narrative that, like we know, for example, that even though Black people are 20% more likely to report psychological stressors, we are statistically less likely to initiate treatment, more likely to terminate treatment prematurely, We're more likely to show up in emergency departments for our mental health treatment as opposed to outpatient services. We know that when we look demographically, Black men are the group that's least likely to engage in mental health treatment. And we look at all that and we draw the conclusions that Black people don't want therapy or that Black people don't don't want to go to therapy because we don't trust it or because we don't understand mental health issues or that black men just don't want treatment. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of fallacy in there. There's a difference, first of all, in saying that black people don't understand anxiety and depression and trauma. There's a difference in saying that and saying that we understand it. We're just used to it. You know, it's just something that we have always had to deal with and carry and rise above. And I think it's also, it is a false narrative for us to, I think, draw the conclusion that Black people don't want treatment. We want treatment, but we want treatment that speaks to who we are, that speaks to our our experience, that speaks to our culture. And when we look at the rationale behind Black people not initiating treatment or or terminating treatment prematurely and showing up in emergency departments, we have to acknowledge the fact that most of our outpatient resources are not in Black and Brown communities. And so if I've got to take three buses to get to my initial appointment, I am less likely to show up than someone who who lives right in the same neighborhood with their treatment provider. I'm less likely to go to that initial treatment appointment, and I'm more likely to terminate and not go back to that follow-up appointment, which also means that we are much more likely, because we don't have those outpatient resources, we are much more likely to enter into the behavioral health system when we are in crisis. And so the entry into the behavioral system for many black and brown people is going to be either in the back of a police car or in an acute care emergency department. So first of all, that's not conducive to good mental health outcomes, but it also is not going to create a good relationship with the mental health system to where you want to continue to to, to be engaged in treatment when your initial entry into the mental health system was one that is has been another traumatic event in your life. So I think that we have to acknowledge that we don't provide the right avenues for treatment for black and brown communities. And then once we get people engaged in treatment, we don't take into account the life experience, what it means to be a black or brown person in America and how that impacts our mental wellness. This is the sticky place where I feel compelled to throw a wrench in the works. Because while I agree with Victor, 
And I think his assessment about why institutional racism and our failure to acknowledge it is a huge factor in why a person in the black or brown community might avoid mental health care at all costs. It still doesn't provide an answer for my family. Yes, agreed. The black community has a million legitimate reasons to want to handle our mental health and crisis needs on our own. The problem is, I only need to look at my own family to tell you that at some point, the crisis needs of my brother will sprint past the boundaries of what our community can do for him, even what it's willing to do for him. So for me, I don't have the luxury of stopping at the analysis of why the community should be the one-stop shop for all mental health care needs because it still excludes the ones that I know I need for help. This is the essential problem in reconciling the two Olmsteads. When I ask Black activists what my family should do and where I can fit my needs into their proposed solutions for systemic racial bias, we reach an impasse. I get where they're coming from. They get where I'm coming from, but we can't exactly agree with each other because the solutions I need are not compatible with their vision of a system that can operate without those outside of our community whose neglect and abuse have been so harmful to us. I need a system that can save my brother's life and offer him a chance to regain his identity and also protect my family and the public from the very real danger that he can pose when he's in full-blown psychosis. And sometimes, yes, that does mean a system that includes involuntary hospitalization and treatment when he doesn't believe he needs it. Imade and I are not on the same page about this. For Imade, state hospitals are no place for healing and coercion, as well as police, should be abolished. Even a diverse state hospital experience carries the sting of historical and present-day racism. This is the thing that is another element in some psychiatric hospitals. The staff, the entry-level staff, and even sometimes the advanced-level staff are all Black or mm -hmm. brown. Right. And so what's happening is that it's kind of like a plantation where Black folks are doing all the work and white folks swoop in and make really, really harmful decisions that the Black folks have to carry out. And so I didn't know how to navigate that situation because some of the nurses and some of the staff that were there, we were, we, we cool, we kicking it, you know, but then a psychiatrist, a non-black psychiatrist would swoop in, talk to me for five minutes and force me on medication that may harm my body. It was a lot to navigate in those spaces. Here again is the community duality. As a black person, I understand the Asylum State Hospital Plantation comparison. As a caregiver to a loved one with a diagnosis of severe mental illness that went untreated, I have to call for help. I can't deny the life-saving resources state hospitals provide during a crisis. But in this work, I listen and I hear loud and clear that our state hospitals can be just as broken as the rest of our system. For example, my loved one was consistently released from hospitals while still in the psychosis that prompted sending him there. I cling to the inefficient safety of hospitals because there is nothing else. It took a while for me to get these stories and go, oh, he is not being sent to a place where he can get better and come home better. It's not therapeutic at all. And th that was the few times when it was a state hospital because because most of the time it was jail. 
hearing that, hearing the the plantation asylum comparison, I I don't think there is really any difference. I think we were enthralled with that model, this country, and just kept it going to police all the people that, you know, can't join the status quo. So I hear you wholeheartedly when you make that comparison. Want to go back to just a little piece of what you're saying, because my next question is just about you wanted to heal at home. You wanted the community. You don't want to be thrown into these rooms and told what to do and forced to take medication. There are people who are going to hear this and say, you tried to harm yourself. What do you think is supposed to happen? Let's talk about how that should look, (laughs) how it should look to get you back, to get you back thriving. So where do we start with what should happen when our loved ones are in that much distress? Instead of making the phone call, going to the asylum, to the state hospital, what should it look like? What should be happening? Yeah, I mean, that's a a complicated question definitely based upon the needs of the individual folks who are are struggling. I would just say for myself, I was more suicidal when I got out of the hospital than when I came in because they stripped away everything that makes me want to live. If you strip away the community that I have, whether it's online or offline, I'm going to get sadder. I'm going to get more depressed. If you strip away my ability to work, when work gives me a sense of accomplishment, gives me a sense of dignity, then I'm going to feel worse. If you strip away my ability to call loved ones whenever I would like to call them, it's going to strip away. So I think the idea is that we need to figure out how do we build on people's lives mm-hmm. and not subtract from their lives. Oh, I like um, and I think that that's going to have to tied to COPA head plans or advanced directives. Mm-hmm. It's going to really have to be tied to preventative care. So basically, I think the decisions, crisis decisions can't be made during the crisis. It really does need to be made before yes. when a person yeah. is mentally stable enough, emotionally stable enough to make decisions. So I would say it's a community thing. I would build a plan with my loved ones and say, hey, when I'm struggling, this is what I need because it's too overwhelming to answer those questions in the crisis. And for me personally, I mean, I had a mental health crisis like this past week. And my copahead plan is basically to go to my mom's house okay. and to just kind of wait out the, the crisis, the suicidal thoughts in a place where I'm not driving. Because for some folks with BPD, with borderline personality disorder, we struggle with reckless driving. But yeah, my, my copahead plan is, is to be with my mom. But yeah, not everyone has that privilege and that, that opportunity. But I would say making the plans before the crisis is the best way to go. I'm going to not push back a little bit, but just ask that question about our differences. So my new saying is the system is broken, but so are our homes. How do we advocate together if I have a loved one who won't make a plan because they're not sick? But being involuntary commitment, calling the police now 988 is all we have. And it's three or four times a year, every year. Do you ever come across these resources? Because as an advocate, I understand that each group, all of us have our different missions. As a loved one, I go on BEAM, I go on to Black Mental Health Alliance, and I feel completely left out because the too sick to help yourself conversation is just usually missing. Is there anything you've seen? that could be helpful to us in that situation. Like we need the total system. We have nothing but calling the police right now. And, oh, I would love to sit down with my loved one and say, what will help you? And I have, and they tried to answer me with telepathy, you know, 
or they said they want to drink tea. And it's like, okay, this is paranoid schizophrenia. Where are those answers? Where can we have that conversation? So we can all stop calling for involuntary commitment. We can all start building that community that works. So we can't make those plans, or at least we don't see it. Maybe I don't see it because my lens is crisis. I, I am responding to when my loved one is in crisis. Do we advocate together? Do we advocate apart? How's it supposed to look? That part. And I know I said a whole lot. So speaking to someone who can plan ahead, help this big sister out who is like, well, we, that just won't work for me. Is not helpful. How, what, do, what do you got? What do you got? I'm not sure what I have because that's not my lived experience. I'm sorry. And I also want to validate your efforts and how complicated and how hard this is. I don't really have all the answers because it's definitely rooted in individual needs. Mm-hmm, but I would say mm-hmm. you probably heard of the Hearing Voices Network. Yes. Right. And, yes. And like peer support and how powerful that is to really reclaim sense of agency and dignity. I would defer to those groups and say what what has worked. Founded in 2010, the Hearing Voices Network USA represents a partnership between individuals who hear voices or have other extreme or unusual experiences, professionals, and allies in the community, all of whom are working together to change the assumptions made about this phenomenon and create supports, learning, and healing opportunities for people across the country. As a caregiver, however, It's not the hearing voices part that matters. Not all of our loved ones hear voices when they have a diagnosis of severe mental illness. And hearing voices is technically not the problem. Living in daily crisis is our focus. Our loved ones' deterioration into homelessness, starvation, harm to themselves or others is our concern. Personally, my loved one is too sick to even express if they ever heard a voice or not. My loved ones mark inability to discern their individual reality from our shared one and care for themselves is the issue. Hopefully, this podcast will be the bridge that helps us to build the community that supports all of us. As I continued speaking with Amade, I was really struck by how similar the experience of asking members of my Black community to acknowledge my severe mental illness reality was to the struggle I outlined in an early episode in getting members of my severe mental illness community to acknowledge my Black reality. My Black severe mental illness reality continues to be marginalized within both of these marginalized communities. We have to have these conversations because we'll both go to the same testimony to say totally different things. I need involuntary commitment to work because it is my only lifeline. You need involuntary commitment to stop because it is traumatizing. Where do we meet? Preventative care. Preventative care. So now we are, we all know we got to go upstream. Absolutely have to go upstream. In that moment, I always used to say, Who grabs the naked person in public, in the middle of psychosis? Who connects? Who who in society do you want to see? Let's say we have the utopia. We built everything upstream. Psychosis is going to happen. Who do we want in that position? What do we want the system to look like if we still miss somebody? And we we built it all. We, We built it all, but oh no. Who connects and makes that moment of psychosis right? Yeah, probably peers, peers who also deal with psychosis, who understand what they're going through and understands what triggers they may have in those moments and how to deescalate. I would say peers and, you know, Cahoots, they've been doing crisis services since the late 80s. And they've taken, what, over 24,000 calls and maybe called the police maybe 100, 200 times. Mm -hmm. So 
I would probably follow the CAHOOTS model and the peer support model. So what is CAHOOTS? CAHOOTS, or Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, is a mobile crisis intervention program that was created in 1989 as a collaboration between White Bird Clinic and the city of Eugene, Oregon. Its mission is to improve the city's response to mental illness, substance abuse, and homelessness. They do this in part by having a medical professional take lead during a crisis intervention. How do you practice never calling the police, if you do at all, in, in these situations? Look, yeah, I call look, my peers. Your peers? Yeah, I call my peers who also deal with chronic suicide ideation and can help me manage my thoughts. I also reach out to my therapist who can provide coaching to help me with DBT skills to do to manage the suicidality. Uh, I reach unpack. out to my mom. Amade said earlier that reaching out to her mother is a privilege. But it wasn't always that way. Like many parents, her mother wasn't well-versed in mental illness. And, as in many communities, her mother leaned on the church for answers, something that has caused friction in the Black community. Yeah, it was really difficult. I definitely had a conversation with my mom where she was like, I I put God before y'all. And it was difficult. It was difficult to see, you know, the thousand spiritual warfare books on her shelves and not a single parenting book. And it kind of communicated that I'm not that valuable. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think that is what is the danger, is communicating to your child that they're not worthy of value, that they're worthy of basically being discarded for, for religion. My mom is such a better parent now. She's my rock right now. And so I definitely want to encourage folks who are dealing with religious parents who are unsupportive that some of them can possibly change. You really have to model what you want to see. And so when it comes to the whole religion situation, I am definitely a person that has a spiritual faith, a Christian Mm -hmm. faith, but I'm damaged Mm -hmm. and hurt by the church. So it is difficult. So I use my faith to go to therapy. And so what that does is that my mom can't really argue with my healing because you can't argue with results. And so I think that as she saw my growth from going to therapy, she started to realize, oh, this works. Made needs this. And that's, that's when she started turning around and started driving me to therapy, paying for my sessions. Like she saved my life. My mom saved my life. And so I would just say to encourage folks, like, model what you want to see because people cannot deny your healing. Victor Armstrong has also felt the historical and present-day sting of dismissal of severe mental illness. But you know what else we don't recognize is that there also has been historically a teaching in the Black community under the guise of religion that we just endure suffering. We yes. put on this earth to suffer. Trouble will last always. In the sweet by and by, it's all going to be over. But while I'm here, I am picked out to be picked on, as I used to hear old people say in church. And so I think that some of that, we have looked at things very differently. We've looked at our anxiety, our depression as being a part of the Black experience. We look at younger people's anxiety and depression and speaking out about it as weakness. And it's not that it's new. I think we have just chosen to look at it differently. Part of the disservice we're doing to young people is, you know, I've got two boys at home. I've got a a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. And if I said to them, we survived slavery, we can survive anything, that had nothing to do with them. 
they don't know a thing about slavery. And while that might have worked for my grandparents, for my boys, all it is is a way of shutting them down and saying, you don't have a right to feel what you feel. That's power. And I do a lot of talking with faith leaders and and the faith-based community. But I also, I counsel the older generation that faith-based experience for our kids today is different from ours. I grew up where everybody went to a community church. You had a church on the corner that you, you went to, your parents had gone to, your grandparents had gone to. And so even that experience is very different. And so for our young people, I think as long as we try to see them through the lens that we have traditionally seen ourselves and try to make them see themselves through our lens, we are just creating more hardship for them. How do we address the tension between the church, the high numbers of bullying and death by suicide among LGBTQ members of the community to have something that is healing in those spaces? I go to church often. It's a a funny result of being born Muslim in the South, but I won't go to churches where there's a negative message toward the LGBTQ community. I won't go to churches who also insist these, these tensions that we hold are phenomenal. Church can tell you Jesus died for your sins and at the same time tell you you're not worthy. Right. How do we reconcile these tensions that do affect our mental health and affect these rates of suicide that we're experiencing? Well, part of it, I think, is doing exactly what you know what, what you described. You don't go to those churches. Mm-hmm. The church is like every other entity in mm-hmm. that it responds to pressure. And I think we are seeing where more and more churches and faith-based organizations are starting to be more open to conversations about LGBTQ and and being more open and embracing of the LGBTQ community. But one of the things that I do share, particularly in the Black church, is as as a Black man, I know what it feels like to be discriminated against. And I struggle with how we can be so quick to discriminate against anyone. If you pull back the layers and see what is, it's discrimination. You know, and is discrimination right? To me, again, it's it's kind of getting people to to frame those things differently. But I'm kind of like you. I'm not going to go to a church. If I hear you say something condemning the LGBTQ community, that's not a church I can attend. And I remind folks, too, that it hasn't been that long ago when Black people couldn't drink at a water fountain that that uh, white people drank in. Or we couldn't even go to the church where white people went to church. And if you went, you better sit in the back. But yet we discriminate against young people in particular who, who identify as LGBTQ. And I share with them, too, that for young people who identify as lesbian, gay or bisexual, they are three times more likely to contemplate suicide and five times more likely to attempt suicide than the heterosexual peers, whether or not you want to acknowledge it, if you are condemning those young people and shunning them, you are contributing to those suicide rates because you are putting that stigma and that pressure and and that uh, discriminatory behavior on those young people. Again, that's just inherently wrong. When it comes to community, it's not just the church that can be dismissive. It can also be our own family, friends, and neighbor and that vicious, vicious stigma. That's very powerful. I want to stay here for a moment with this tension between church and identity. You tweet a lot about labels. And 
that is a it's a perfect way to frame sort of these labels that we see as strengths black christian male strong how do we address those labels that we see as strengths to allow for healing and suicide prevention. I know in my family, I'm split between two worlds. I was raised, born and raised Muslim. My God family is Christian. All the men sound alike because we're black, because we're strong. We are not in need of therapy. How do we take those labels and allow healing yeah. and suicide prevention? Yeah. What I try to do is is not necessarily, in some cases, not necessarily change the label as much as redefine what the labels mean. And so to talk about strength, what does strength really mean? I mean, for me, even in my own mind, the way that I have navigated a lot of the obstacles that I've experienced in my career is by reframing in my mind what it means to be in control and what it means to be strong. You know, the strong does not necessarily mean that I go in and cut somebody out. Sometimes strong is having that self-restraint and take control of the situation. And sometimes control is knowing that I have the ability to walk away and that I don't have to deal with this. And so I think that for people that experience mental health challenges, what I try to get them to see is strength may not be what you think strength is. Strength is not in suffering in silence. Strength is not in walking around feeling like you're going to explode. Strength really is in acknowledging that I need help and being able to create those avenues to get help. Even the way that we think about families, you know, I grew up in a family where, you know, what goes in this goes on this house stays in this house. You don't go out and, and talk about our business in the street. But trying to even redefine what the family space should look like. It, it's not just a place where you keep all your secrets. It's not just a place where the, your father gets the biggest piece of chicken on Sunday. <laughs> but the family space should be a space where we can talk about what hurts us, where we can be vulnerable and not feel like you're going to be judged. We have to define that home space differently. I should be able to tell my wife what hurts me and not be afraid to be vulnerable because she's going to think that I'm weak. I should be able to embrace and hug my boys and tell them that I love them. And I feel like I'm making them soft when I do that. A lot of it, I think the labels are about redefining what those labels mean. See strength differently. See vulnerability differently. See love differently. My father used to spank us and I'm doing this because I love you. No, you're doing it because you're mad. I know all of our parents and grandparents did what they knew to do at the time. Right. But love is really about you're trying to raise your children to be the best people they can be. I just think we need to we need to rethink those labels and, and think about them differently, put them in a healing context and think about for you, set aside what you've been taught and think about what does heal you? What does make you feel safe? You know, what does make you feel cared for? And as we reflect on that, put that into action. And, and let that be how you define strength and how you define love and how you, you define care. Okay, I have a challenge for you. I'm at the sure. dinner table. I'm with my father who expects the big piece of chicken, who doesn't give hugs, who doesn't say, I love you. How do I present this idea? What is the conversation that needs to be had at the dinner table? Who is the credible messenger to present yeah. this? When I engage people in conversation, the first thing I ask myself is, what is it that you want to accomplish? If it is to create an environment for healing, then that's good. That's a worthy cause. 
If it's to make a point, not so much. If I'm approaching my father or grandfather, whoever it is, because I'm trying to create space for healing, that's different than I just want to show him that he's wrong. <laughs> so let's set that aside first and let's, let's assume that that's not the case. I will tell you, though, for my father, the avenue to healing for him has been grandkids mm. because it puts him in a different place. I have been able to use my kids and I've got three. I've got I got a seven year old, a nine year old and I got a 28 year old. So th- th- yeah, don't even do the math. <laughs> but but I learned I learned with my first one that avenue to softening my father's heart was really through grandkids because he saw them differently. He related to them differently. And what I did was I began to utilize that. When we talk about mental health challenges, my youngest child is uh, diagnosed ADHD. My father didn't have as big an issue of it, but but like with my in-laws, they also are very old school. So initially they were like, nothing wrong with him. He doesn't need treatment. He doesn't need, like, no, there is nothing wrong with him, but he's got some challenges. And we're trying to help him to give him every opportunity to be successful. So that's helped to kind of soften that conversation. So I think finding the avenue to put it in a context that your father could understand is the first step. It may be that putting it in the context of this is what I'm dealing with and I need you to understand it. That might work. In the political context of community and severe mental illness, most caregivers are stuck until the medical community steps up connects mind and body to healthcare. We must build our own loved ones, a community they are too sick to engage with. You've said before that structural racism bleeds into every system, including criminal justice, education, employment, healthcare, and housing. Where is the responsibility to look at your organization and check those places where it's bleeding into everything you do because it's a part of the structure and you may not see it? Yeah. So I'm of the mindset that because we know that we have an inequitable system, we know that we have a system where structural racism exists. And, and I think that you know people have to understand, first of all, what we mean when we say structural racism. Racism is not this good or bad binary where you're either a racist and you're bad or you're not racist and you're good. It is a power construct. It is a system where you systematically create one set of inherent wealth and power for one group at the expense of another group. So if you look at systemic racism in that context where it is a power construct, it is it is difficult, if not impossible, to look at the way that our system is set up and the way that American history has played out and not see a system whereby you have placed white people at an advantage, black and brown people at a disadvantage. And so if you come at it from that perspective, then I believe you have to assume that your organization, your system is built on inequity, which means that every decision that you make, every policy that you set, you need to be leaning into equity as opposed to perpetuating inequity. So for me, it's not a question of do I have an inequitable policy? Do I have an inequitable system? It exists. So then I have responsibility to do something about it. I think where we miss it a lot of times is people will say, you know, I believe in equity. I believe in equality. And I'm not going to do anything that would intentionally discriminate. 
The problem is the system already discriminates. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to try to write the ship for, for lack of a better term. So, for example, here at the Division of Mental Health, we have established Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Council. And one of the things that they're looking at, this is this is a group of peers, of teammates. But part of their charge is looking at historically what have been our hiring rates and not only our hiring rates, but then of the people that we hire, how many of them stay? Because what we found is that even when we hire black men and women, they are much less likely to make it through the probationary period than the white counterparts. Oh, wow. We look at who gets the most disciplinary actions is black females. And when we look at our hiring practices and we look at who's in the room when we're doing the hiring, oftentimes if we have a panel that's doing the hiring, there is not a black person on the panel. We have a panel that's looking at disciplinary actions. There's not a black person on the panel, which means my narrative may not even be in the room. When you have a panel looking at a disciplinary action, for example, and the consensus is that this black female is just difficult to get along with and not a good teammate, what is the basis for that? And what lens are you looking at that through? What did she do? What kind of language did she use? So those kind of things, I think, even for a state-run organization where you would like to believe that a state system is not going to be discriminatory and that everyone has equal opportunity, there are inherent things built into the system that create an uneven playing field. To your question about the responsibility, I think, first of all, your responsibility is to assume that you do have inequity unless you prove otherwise. I think what you were just saying makes a lot of sense. Like even within community, community healing is important, especially for black people, because because of systemic racism, community was all we had. And that fear of stigma, fear of, of one more thing, like uh, B.B. Moore Campbell quote says, are we using that fear inside of our advocacy to not reach across to each other? Or do you perceive it to be something else? Yeah, I, I definitely think there is a fear, at least for me, I can speak to just a fear of rejection, a fear of if I talk about some of the severe aspects of my condition, that I'm going to be invalidated and that mm. everything that I'm going to be say is going to be through the lens of she's not well. Mm. And so it's a lot of fear because we are getting it from the, the medical industrial complex already. Right. And so many of us just don't want to go through that again in our in, in community spaces. And so, yeah, we, we need to have these conversations. Absolutely. Fear dominates far too many of our mental illness and severe mental illness conversations. Without creating a culture of inclusion, acceptance, awareness, proper funding, we've created communities where hospitals are not among the safest or most reassuring places to go during a time of crisis. How often is death by suicide, suicidal ideation, a result of an undiagnosed serious mental illness or mental illness? You'll hear different numbers. I think it was NAMI that said 90% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosed with mental illness. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure they still stand by that number. I've seen other numbers where it's been more like 60 some percent. Here, here's what I will say. At the end of the day, suicide itself is not a disease. Suicide is the worst possible outcome of the culmination of a lot of very, very complex things, oftentimes including mental illness. But because it's the culmination of a lot of different things, we have a lot of opportunities to intervene. 
I think where we need to focus our attention, more so than just trying to determine is it how many folks had a diagnosed with mental illness, I think we need to be looking at where do we have the opportunity to intervene before this person reached that point of suicidality. What are some practical tools that we can use? So let's say we have a community with resources. If I think I'm in trouble, or more practically, if I think someone else is in trouble, what is the practical daily conversation to connect the therapist or the clinician or the, the peer to the classroom or to the barbershop, to the religious institution? What does that conversation look like person to person? We think we're f- afraid of it. It's uncomfortable. I've often yeah. told my friends, you just have to risk your friendship to save their life. But what does that look like on a, on a daily, yeah. day-to-day basis? In a future world, hmm. it looks like safe space. It looks like we have created space where people feel comfortable saying, I'm hurting. People feel comfortable saying, you know, I'm not feeling like myself today. Or feel comfortable saying, I need you to sit here with me because I think I'm going to hurt myself if I'm left alone. We're not there yet. But I do think that's what we want to get to is where we can normalize that conversation to where people feel like they can be very vulnerable. If I were if I were walking along, you know, my leg is hurting me. I have no problem sitting down on the bench mm. and try to get myself together. If somebody asks what happened, I got a cramp. You know, my leg is hurting. But if I am feeling overwhelmed because I am feeling just the pressures of my job, my marriage, whatever it is, to the point where I'm feeling anxious, I don't feel as comfortable sitting down and saying, you know what, I just need a minute because this is too much. I can't deal with it. I need help. In a future world, that's what the space looks like. In the space where we look like now, I think it takes just creating more and more people who are comfortable with having that conversation. So it means doing things like teaching people mental health first aid. It means things like creating barbershop conversations where, and even training barbers in mental health first aid, barbers and, and, and hairdressers and creating more and more space where people do feel comfortable having that conversation. It means working with faith leaders and teaching them about how to connect people with mental health resources. In our individual conversations, it means, just as you pointed out, it means that I'm going to risk a friendship if it means saving your life. We fear asking someone if they're thinking about killing themselves because we have this notion that somehow if I ask someone if they're going to kill themselves, then I'm going to put the, the, the thought in their head when that's a myth. You know, you, you don't make someone suicidal by asking them about it. They're either suicidal or they're not. But I do think that we need to be willing to ask someone if we think they're suicidal, are you thinking about killing yourself? And then if the answer is yes, or we're not satisfied with the no, we don't leave them alone. You know, we sit. I'm going to sit here. I'm just going to be here. I'm not going to lecture you. I'm not going to preach to you. I'm not going to judge you. But I want you to know I'm here. And, and, you know, if I need to stay on the phone with you, if I need to sit here on the couch with you, I'm going to do that. We can also call this 1-800-273-8255 number if you want to talk to someone on the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. But it, but it means having those kind of conversations with people. If it's children in your home, I tell parents all the time, create a space where your children can talk to you about what they're feeling and you're not going to judge or condemn them. They say that they're hurting. Acknowledge their feelings. You don't tell them, boy, nothing wrong with you. You know, you just you just need to, you know, suck it up and be a man. But acknowledge their feelings and give them space to have those feelings and then validate those feelings and let them know. You know, it sounds like you're going through a lot. Do you want to talk about it and have those conversations with them? So I think until we get to that space where 
that place where we have that safe space where people can just feel free to be vulnerable, it's incumbent upon each of us individually to create that safe space, to be that safe space for someone who's hurting. A safe space. That is what community is meant to be. Why does that goal elude us? Should we just accept that a hospital cannot be a safe space? If we had funding, could hospitals look more like welcoming and supportive campuses rather than forgotten wastelands? If there were more understanding, would psychiatrists more readily welcome and treat patients with a diagnosis of severe mental illness? If there was more inclusion, would individuals with a diagnosis feel empowerment over cultural stigma? Victor's words get tantalizingly close to my experience, but not close enough. If Amade and Victor represent some of the solutions our community proposes for addressing mental illness, I can already tell you that peer support and safe space advocacy wouldn't be enough to save my brother or to keep him out of a police car. But I agree, they must be a start. If the community helps those it can help in these ways, maybe that means that the limited resources available in other parts of the system can actually reach someone like my brother earlier than they did. And if either peer support or creating safe spaces can help anyone in my community, I'm certainly not going to oppose them simply because they don't fit my needs. On the other hand, I don't always get the sense that members of my community are willing to focus on my family's needs, even if they don't match their own. Saying that sometimes civil commitment is necessary and that we may have to treat involuntarily if it means giving someone a chance of not having their illness criminalized doesn't mean I don't understand or agree that systemic racism exists and care is delivered in our institutions in an imperfect way. Calling the police because someone is either violent or suicidal isn't an endorsement of police violence or a vote of confidence in this broken system that criminalizes our loved ones. But for families like mine, it might be our only option. Olmstead, as I said, is about community. From my experience, the problem with it is the one-size-fits-all approach left in its wake. Those who can choose should. Those who cannot choose a continuum of care should not be labeled as making a choice or experiencing a freedom. As members of a community, we know that Anthony Hill and Daniel Prue did not make a liberating decision to publicly disrobe and die in the streets. Listeners, I'll be honest with you that this is one of the biggest challenges as an advocate that I face. This intersection between my identity as a family member deeply affected by severe mental illness and my identity as a Black woman living in America is not one that I find very easy to navigate. It's a conflict that leaves people standing in my shoes with a sense of not fully belonging in either camp. No community at all. I don't have any answers, but my hope is that continued, stubborn engagement between these two communities is going to help over time. When people understand where other people are coming from and are able to empathize with their experience, we make progress, which I guess is the principle that truth and reconciliation is based on. Thank you for listening to Make Them Hear You. 
and for marking B.B. Moore Campbell Minority Mental Health Awareness Month with us. I'm Sabah Muhammad. Until next time, only good things.